If you have got a, a, a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Ezra, and we're going to be in Ezra chapters 5 and 6 this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along with us, there should be Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. And Ezra is a notoriously tricky book to find, and so if you're using the Bibles that are in the chair racks, you can find Ezra chapter 5 on page 392 of the Bibles that are in the chair racks. There are are times when a a person or an entity, whether it be an organization, a, a corporation, a business, will engage in... Uh, uh, lawsuits against another person or another business or another organization, and they will engage in those lawsuits knowing that these lawsuits are pretty much frivolous and that there is probably no real end game for success, and yet they will still try to bring lawsuits against a person or against an organization because it will accomplish a different person uh, purpose. Though they may not win the suit, they will mire that person or that organization down uh, monetarily because they're having to pay to defend themselves. It will, it will weigh them down with time as they're having to try to prepare to de- defend themselves. And it is a tactic that can be used against one's enemies, to put it bluntly. And there is a term for that, a legal term for that. That term is called vexatious litigation. And if a judge realizes that you are engaging in vexatious litigation, there will be a problem many, many times. But these Jewish exiles that we have been studying in the book of Ezra over the past couple of weeks, Ezra chapter 1 and 2, three weeks ago, and then uh, uh, last week, Ezra, Ezra 3 and 4, they have returned from Babylon. God has miraculously allowed these people who have been captured and carried off into exile, he has miraculously allowed them to return. And when we left, uh, left off last week, they, were, they had been able to rebuild the altar. They were able to rebuild the foundations of the temple. Things are moving forward until they become the victims of vexatious litigation. There is a letter-writing campaign going back that's attempting to frustrate them at every turn, and they're, they're willing to play dirty. They're willing to, uh, we saw in those chapters, bribe others to prevent them to, to keep the work from moving forward. They frustrate, they intimidate, they harass the people so that the end result is that this building project, building the temple, ceases. And the last verse of chapter 4 tells us that the, the building project ceased all the way into the second year of King Darius. And if you're doing the math on that, that's, that's about 16 years. Now, I mistakenly said something last week that I want to correct. I said it took 16 years. I think I said at one of the services it took 16 years to build the temple um, because I had the number 16 in my mind. So if you write that down in your notes, you need to cross that out. Right, Matt was wrong. 16 years that this project is not moving forward. 16 years where not much is happening. But the project begins to restart in chapter 5, which we're going to be looking at today, when we are told that two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, 
urged the people to reboot it. So if you're there in Ezra chapter 5, let's read verses 1 and 2 together. This is what the Word of God says. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So what this chapter is opening is telling us is that this building project has been sitting for years now, precious little is going on because they've been so intimidated until finally God gives a word to two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who basically come to the people and say, what are you doing? Let's, let's get this thing going. Let's start this project again. And there are two people who answer the call to lead the project. And so they're getting the gears going again to begin this project. And immediately they run into opposition again. The Bible tells us this in verse 3 of Ezra chapter 5. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Azanai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Tatanai and his associates are basically using an intimidation tactic here. They're basically walking up to these people and saying, hey, where's your building permit? I want to see the building permit. Go to the courthouse downtown and show us that you have been authorized to build this building. And furthermore, what's your name? Because when I send a strongly worded letter, your name's going to be in it. And the names of all the people who think that they can rebuild the temple of Jerusalem without a building permit. But the Bible tells us something in verse 5. The Bible tells us that the eye of God was on his people. You see that there? The eye of God was on his people. Through the encouragement of these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they were not going to be deterred this time until they received an official cease and desist order from King Darius himself. Well, we don't have the time to read the, the letter that was sent by Tatanai and his associates, but in verses 6 to 17, that letter is contained for us in chapter 5. And in that letter, there's basically a rehearsal of everything that had happened to this point. Tadanai tells the king that he thinks it's a, a dubious that they actually have a decree that they can do this. He gives the explanation that the people of Israel have given him, and he asks for proof. He asks for permission in the form of a decree from Cyrus himself. And chapter 6 then opens with a directive from Darius to see if such a document exists. Has Cyrus given a decree 
that the people can rebuild the temple. And so there is a search through the royal archives. And they, they begin in Babylon and they're searching through the royal archives to see if they can figure out if, if this thing exists. And they don't find anything there. But they end up finding it in a city called Ekbatana. And the interesting thing about that, this is just kind of a little nerdy interesting thing, is that Cyrus, we know historically, spent his summers in Ekbatana. So Cyrus, who'd given the decree, he would start looking in Babylon, but when it wasn't found in Babylon, they actually found it in the city where he spent his summers. It turned out that everything the Jews had been saying was true. So King Darius sends a response to Tadani and his associates with a, degree, with a decree of his own. And that's found in Ezra chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Look there with me, if you will. It says, Now therefore, Tadani, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazani and your associates, the governors, who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Okay, great news. He says, leave the poor people alone. Let them do the building project. They're correct. They were given a decree by Cyrus himself that they can have this temple rebuilt. And then Darius adds insult to injury in verse 8. Moreover... I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. So Darius's response to Tadani is basically, leave those people alone, allow them to build. The only, the only communication I want you to have with them is when they ask you for money, give it so that they can have this building project paid for out of the royal treasury. And we didn't read this verse, but he goes on to give a penalty for if Tadani and his associates don't do what he's asked. He tells them, anyone who does not help, anyone who stands in the way, anyone engaged in this vexatious litigation... Anyone who bribes or intimidates or frustrates them, let there be the central support beam removed from their house. Okay, wow, that's serious. And then let them be impaled on it. <laughs> Darius ain't playing. <laughs> Anybody who stands in their way, you're going to have your house destroyed and we're going to impale you on it. Well, with that, the building project thankfully, kicks into high gear. We're told this in verse 14 of Ezra chapter 6. It says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They finally 
finish the rebuilding of the temple some 22 years after they came back. What was supposed to be a simple building project, uh, don't start raising parallels to the thing we got going on out here, okay? (laughs) It may well be 22 years, and we're in good biblical company if it takes that long. These people have experienced opposition on every side. They have come into a situation in which they do not have power. And 22 years later, they are finally able to dedicate the temple. They offer sacrifices. They restore the work of the priests and the Levites. And the chapter ends, chapter 6 ends, with the keeping of the Passover. And remember what this author of Ezra Nehemiah has done on so many occasions is they have drawn our attention using language from Israel's history to compare it to what was going on in the present. We saw in chapters 1 and 2 that they're explicitly using language from the Exodus to say, this is like that. This deliverance of God from Persia to come back is is a new Exodus. And that is being reinforced for us again in chapter 6 when we see these people celebrating with the Passover. Because remember, the Passover is what God's people celebrated when they were delivered from Egypt. They were delivered from the, the clutches of their captors. The Bible says this in Ezra 6, verse 19, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile And also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel." So, I said that at the very beginning that Ezra can be divided fairly neatly into chapters 1 through 6 and chapters 7 to 10. And so we're reaching the end of the first major section of the book of Ezra. The thing that they have come back to do has finally been accomplished. It's been completed. They have experienced setbacks along the way, and we talked about those setbacks along the way. They were experiencing them then, and as we're going to see even in later chapters in, in, in Ezra, and then if you're to read into Nehemiah, see that that's not the end of the setbacks that they experience. And yet, as I said last week, God always and unfailingly uses what we experience as setbacks to accomplish His good purposes. That's hard for us to believe when we are standing nose to nose with the setback, which is why God gives us the scriptures to show us that we are not the only people in the history of planet earth who have experienced setbacks, who have seen God even use them and incorporate in them into his plan 
to accomplish his purposes. And so this first major section ends on a pretty significant high note. The temple is built. The people are celebrating. The Passover is being shared. So that is a fairly brief walk through the material in those first two chapters. But now I want us to stop, as we do each week, and I want us to consider what are we intended to take away from these chapters. And as I often do, I want to summarize one main truth that I want you to be able to walk away from our service with this morning. And that one truth is this. God is building a temple for his worship and our joy. God is building a temple for his worship and our joy. Now, the question that we ought to be asking as we are considering, is, considering this is, how does this connect to me? After all, what, is, what have I to do with a temple that was built centuries and centuries and centuries ago? And one of the ways I could take this, that I'm not going to take, one of the ways I could take this is to say, look at how God helps his people with building projects. We too have a building project. We too feel like it may take 22 years to, fi- to finish our building project, but God will make a way. Does God care about our building project? Absolutely. And is God going to make a way for us to complete our building project? Absolutely. But is this story here for us in the Bible simply to tell us that we're going to be able to build our building? Well, of course, the answer to that has to be no. That's not why this is in the Bible, even though God cares about us and what we are doing very much. And so I would like to suggest the relevance of this to you in three particular ways this morning. Here's the first. Number one, God's temple building project continues today. So we're asking the question, what in the world does that have to do with me? The first thing I want you to note is that God's temple building project continues today. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, we often talk about the Bible, what God is doing to redeem a people for himself from every kingdom, tribe, and tongue, and nation. We often talk about this as a grand story, the story of what God is doing to to gather a people for himself. And as any good story has, there are themes that run through that story. There are threads that are woven all the way through each chapter of that story that we can pull on, that we can isolate, that we can look at. And one of the themes that runs all the way through this grand story is the theme of temple. So we need to start by asking ourselves, what is a temple? Well, a temple represents in many things, in many ways, God's presence, right? A temple manifests 
demonstrates God's presence. Now, is God limited to a temple? No. If you know anything about the Bible, if you've been in church for any amount of time, then you know a fancy word. You know that God is omnipresent, which means that there is nowhere that God isn't. God is everywhere at the same time and at all times. But we also know as we read the Bible together that God chooses to manifest or demonstrate that presence in a particular place at a particular time. And God's presence is uh, demonstrated is his commitment to dwell with his people. One of the promises that God makes to his people is that I will dwell with them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. So let me briefly walk through with you then a history of that promise as it's demonstrated in this theme of temple. And of course, I'm going to move through this at light speed. We'll have other opportunities to talk about pieces this, but it all begins in the very first chapters of the Bible. Because of the language that's used and because of what we see in the building of the tabernacle and the temple later on, it seems very likely that when we read and see about the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was a sort of temple. The the Bible does not use that word temple, but the Garden of Eden is a place where God chooses to manifest his presence. In fact, he meets with Adam and Eve there, and he, the Bible says he walks with them, and, and he communes with them. And God gives Adam and Eve a responsibility. They are to be fruitful and multiply. They are to fill the earth. They are image bearers. They are made in God's image, and they and others are to fill the earth with image bearers. They are to exercise dominion over the earth. They are, in essence, supposed to take Eden and make the whole earth Eden. Does that work? Does that happen? No. It, in fact, does not happen because of Adam and Eve's sin. And one of the things that we see immediately is that there is, a, there is something now between God and and humanity. They are cast out of the garden. They are no longer experiencing God's presence in the way they had been accustomed to experiencing it. And so we ask ourselves the question, what is going to become of them? What is going to become of us? What is going to become of humanity if God has withdrawn his presence from his people? But yet as the Bible moves on, we see God manifesting his, continuing to manifest his presence. For instance, when the people are delivered from Egypt, when they experience the exodus, one of the things that God delivers to them are very specific instructions on building a very specific thing. Do you remember what that is? It's the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a sort of mobile temple. It was, a, it was a manifestation of God's presence that could be taken from location to location. It could be set up. It could be torn down. There were different, uh, there were very specific instructions about it, how it was to be transported. Then when the people are occupying the land and David is on the throne, what is one of David's great concerns? 
David is looking out and seeing how grand his house is and seeing that, that there's still this tabernacle and King David has this desire to build a temple as a manifestation in the center of the promised land of God's presence. And so he begins gathering the materials for that and his son Solomon builds this magnificent temple this beautiful edifice. They have a dedication that, was, that was, is, is jaw-dropping. We talked about it last week. Fire comes down from heaven to consume the sacrifices. And the Bible says that God's glory fills that temple like a cloud. Okay, that's God's presence. Though he's omnipresent, that is God's presence being manifested in that temple. God's people... Do not follow him. They do not walk in his ways. They do not obey his laws and his statutes. And another empire comes and destroys that temple. It's burned. It's burned to the ground and raised so that the manifestation of God's temple, God's presence in in the form of the temple, exists no more. Now, just in this brief little rehearsal, as we're tracing very quickly this theme of temple throughout the grand story of Scripture, immediately that should be helping you understand why the exiles' return to Jerusalem to build the temple is of such great significance. They want to see the temple rebuilt not because of, for nostalgic reasons, they don't want to see this temple rebuilt because, man, we remember, man, that was one of our favorite places to go. Um, It's one of our favorite buildings. It was beautiful, and it would be kind of symbolic of us making a comeback. Those are not the primary reasons why they want the temple to be rebuilt. They want the temple to be rebuilt because a rebuilt temple is symbolic of God's keeping his promises to them. I will dwell with them and be their God and they shall be my people and them being allowed to return to the land and build this structure where God manifests his presence is a visible reminder that God had not abandoned them. Well, this theme of temple, if we want to continue pulling at that thread, continues into Jesus' day. In John chapter 2, the Bible tells us that Jesus goes into the temple one day and becomes very angry that a group of people have turned the temple into a strip mall. And so he gets some leather straps and binds, braids them together, and then he starts driving all of the money changers out who have been turning the temple grounds into a place of commerce. He's flipping tables and driving them out, and people rightfully ask the question, hey, by what authority are you doing this? Because that's not a typical thing to do. Jesus gives them a rather cryptic response In John chapter 2, in verse 19, he says, Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And the people are like, okay, thanks. That's not the question we were asking. But Jesus was answering their question. John tells us in verse 21 that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. 
Jesus, if we're tra- tracing this theme of temple throughout this grand story, Jesus appears on the scene and prevents, presents himself to the people as the temple where God dwells. He is the living, breathing, bleeding embodiment of God's promise to be with us, to dwell with us, to be our God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And when he says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. He is not referring to the temple where all the commerce is happening. He's referring to himself. He's telling them that just as many years earlier, the temple had been destroyed because of the people's sin, so his temple would be destroyed once again because of people's sin. But this would be the final solution to the sin problem because Jesus makes the audacious prediction that you destroyed this temple in three days, I will raise it up. This time the temple raised never to be destroyed again. If you're here with us this morning and you are not a Christian, we are talking about a lot of new concepts that may be strange, may be difficult, may be a matter of curiosity to you. But one thing I want you to hear this morning is that what I have just been talking about right now, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is the good news of the gospel, and it is the only way for God to make good on his promise to dwell with his people. Because what is it that keeps us from relationship with God? It is our sin. And you can't outrighteous your sinfulness. You can't buy a sin scale and keep piling enough things on the righteousness side to finally tip the scale of your unrighteousness in your favor. The Bible says that God is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy and perfectly just, and you and I are not, which puts us in a position of absolute helplessness before God unless he intervenes. On our behalf. The Bible tells us the great news that God the Father sent God the Son to offer himself as a sacrifice on the behalf of sinful people like you and sinful people like me so that God can forgive us, make us new, and make good on that promise to dwell with us and be our God for all eternity. You can receive that good promise by repenting of your sins and putting your faith and your trust in Christ where you sit right now. That thread, if we keep pulling, continues. Later in the New Testament, the Bible continues the theme of temple by saying something that is quite striking. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple? And the original reader of that, who would have been reading it in Greek, would have understood that the you pronoun that's used there is a plural pronoun, which means that God is speaking to his people and saying that you all collectively are 
God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and in case you weren't getting it, and you are that temple. What an extraordinary thing that God would make good on that promise to dwell with us and be our God and, and, and let us be his people and that he would choose to dwell with us in such a way that, that we could be called the very temple where he dwells. What an amazing thing. This theme of temple, though, continues right down to the very last chapters of the scriptures in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, we see a description of the new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new heavens and the new earth. And verse 3 of Revelation 21 tells us that a loud voice makes the following announcement, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That promise is made to you. That promise is made to you. God, we see at the end of Revelation, we see God keeping his promise to eternally dwell with his people. And we would think, okay, if this temple thing theme is moving through. If God has promised that he is going to dwell with his people, then certainly we would expect to find the final culmination of the temple here, right? Where is the temple in the new Jerusalem? And Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22 says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Do you know what that verse is a nod to? It's a nod to God's original purposes to make the whole earth his temple where he dwells with his people in goodness and righteousness and justice and truth for all eternity. There is not a corner of that new heavens and new earth, not an atom, not a leaf, not a rock, not a place in the furthest reaches of space or the furthest depths of the sea that will not be filled with his glory. So, what does their struggling building project have to do with us? Only everything. Their building project is part of your story and the great end where God keeps his promise to be your God and to dwell with you and for you forever to be his people. That ought to draw us to worship. And that leads me to the second point. Number two, God's temple building project is closely connected to our joy. This grand temple building project where we've seen a chapter of it in Ezra is closely connected to your joy. 
We may not have seen this in our initial read-through, but verse 16 of chapter 6 tells us that the people celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Verse 22 says, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. Worship is the great purpose for which each one of us was made. We were made to see and enjoy and glorify our Creator forever. And we sometimes feel like when God's desire to see His temple built, we might come away with the mistaken impression God does all things for His own glory, that God desires and even demands His worship, that God is some kind of social media influencer who is, has, has Himself fueled by the affirmation of a continual stream of likes. But that's not who God is, and that's not what God is like. God is the greatest being, and in offering himself to us, he is offering us the opportunity for our greatest We were made for him, and we will only find our true joy as it is found in him. And so C.S. Lewis famously says that in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. When we experience the goodness, the kindness, the love, the grace of God, it turns us to worship. Number three, and finally, I want us to see this truth, that worship has regular rhythms to remind us of God's grace. Chapter six we saw ends with the people celebrating the Passover. Well, we don't celebrate the Passover anymore, do we? However, the Passover, the pieces of the Passover were meant to point us to something greater. Remember at the end of the, the chapter, I read that the Passover lamb was slaughtered? And every time they would celebrate the Passover together. They were reminded, yes, of God's grace, but in seeing that sacrifice, they were reminded that their sins were ever before them. They were reminded that sin is an obstacle to God dwelling with his people. The Passover points us to the need for the perfect sacrifice. It points us to our need for Christ. And what I love about the way God organizes things is that this is the chapter we landed on in a day when we were going to observe the Lord's Supper together. And engineer that. It's just the way it worked out. But the New Testament explicitly connects the work of Christ to the Passover in at least two ways. On one hand, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and says, "Do this as often as you uh, uh, drink the, as long, often as you drink this bread," I can't get this right. Eat this bread and drink this cup. Do it in remembrance of me. And he talks about when you do that, you are showing, you are preaching the Lord's death until he comes. And he institutes that on the night of the Passover. 
The Bible also tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The scriptures explicitly connect Jesus to the Passover by saying this lamb that loses its life year in and year out points us to Christ, the Passover lamb, who is slain but rises And no more sacrifice for sin ever need be made again. I like to remind us of things as we share in the Lord's Supper together. Each week we do it. So I'd like you to consider this interesting reality as we take these elements, this bread and this cup together. When we share the Lord's Supper together, the temple of the living God the body of Christ, which is what we are. We are the temple of the living God. The temple of the living God, the church, is eating the broken bread to remind us that Jesus, the temple of the living God, was destroyed for our sins. We are the temple, eating the broken temple so that God could keep his promises to us. So when you take this cup to your lips, when you take this bread to your lips this morning, you are remembering that God has promised to return. Jesus has promised to return for us, to gather us to himself, where we will be a place where his glory dwells, and he will have finally and completely fulfilled his purposes to us and his promises to us to be our God, to dwell with us so that we can be his people. Let me give you a few instructions about, the, about this before we um, dismiss you by Rose. The first thing I want to, add, to, to, to just mention is, is who can participate in the Lord's Supper. The Bible makes it very clear, and you may have already even gathered this from what we've talked about. If it is the temple of the living God, if it is the church of the living God who, who is, is participating in this, then this is something that is reserved exclusively for Christians, which means that if you are not a Christian, you don't know what it means to be a Christian, you're not, you're not sure about all of this, then we would ask you to refrain from participating. And we would ask you to refrain from participating, not because we want to deliberately exclude you, not because we want you to feel left out, not because we want to embarrass you in any way, but because those are the instructions the Bible gives us. What I would ask you to do instead of that is I would ask you to consider the state of your soul before God this morning. Has there been a time in your life when you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, has that happened for you? And if you have never turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, then what we want you to know this morning is that he stands awaiting you with open arms. Turn in faith to Christ.